This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hi, my name is Sophie Bourque. I'm from Montreal. I'm a judge of the Superior Court now. Not something that anybody could have foreseen when I joined the, joined the task force in 1991. I am Daphne Dumont, talking from Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. I started, <laughs> I started whenever we all started. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patricia Bloxon, uh, joining from Calgary, Alberta, uh, where I practice uh, law and have been practicing law for the last 40 years. Um, I was, along with uh, Sophie uh, and Daphne, a member of the uh task force that was chaired by Madam Justice Bertha Wilson. Hello, I'm also Sophie Bach. No. <laughs> <laughs> only, only in my dreams. I am, uh, my name is Molina Buckley. I'm a retired lawyer uh, now living here in Vancouver, sort of retired, semi-retired. I was actually a researcher for the Canadian Bar Association. So I was working, living in Ottawa, working at the national office. I'm actually not a task force member, but I was never a task force member. But you're just I, a task force I, I, soul. You were the task force. You wrote it. You wrote it, Melina. Let's be clear. And I can't believe it's been 30 years. Just can't believe. I will do it all again. <laughs> Madam Wilson said. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to make a report about the problems. We know the problems. We're going to focus on the solution. Uh, so that was very interesting. And she also said something that I now that I'm 61 years old, uh, I realized that this was kind of her wisdom when she said that I want this report to still be relevant in 20 years. Well, guess what? It's still relevant 30 years from from there. And my God. That was life experience speaking, because I never thought that in 30 years, you know, <laughs> it was still going to be relevant. Interesting to be 30 years. Well, also cannot believe it's 30 years. What distresses me at times and over the last 30 years has distressed me is that it seems there have been times during my last 30 years where I thought it didn't make a difference. Now, I don't believe that today. I do not believe that today. But I will tell you that there have been times where I have heard comments and seen things where I go, did this report really happen? Did the profession actually listen to this? Because even today, like this last week, I had one of our junior lawyers come in and talk about being sexually harassed. And I'm going, and, and she was afraid to talk about it because she's so junior. Okay, well, I remember feeling like that. You know, there was, it took a, it took a, a lot of, a lot of voices lifting this idea up and supporting it for it to get the traction that it did. I think ultimately what we had the privilege of being was sort of like the flame of a spark. I do think uh, that it was a, uh, watershed moment for the CBA in many ways, uh, partly because there was this group of women inside the CBA. Daphne uh, was one, Sophie was one, uh, Pat was a bit more of an outsider and came in and, and shook things up. The, the resolution actually sat on the shelf for a few years and the executive committee didn't move it forward. And there was kind of a real um, groundswell within the CBA to make sure something happened and to commit to implementation, which was the first time uh, really that the CBA did that with a report. Before that, it was very much, you have a blue, blue ribbon, 
panel of, you know, the white successful male lawyer who represented the CBA at that time, uh, almost, almost universally. And uh, they would do this brilliant report and it would sit there and that would be it. And they would have a huge budget and do it. And then uh, they would pat themselves on the back and that would be it. And this group of women really were determined to make change. And it just, it started so many things. I think that, that our initial approach on, on gender equality, I don't think we dissected it in the way and through the lens that we would now, right? Where we look at every aspect of equality. And that opening up that lens, it's a small lens, opened up so many other lenses within this profession, right? And the CBA is now pursuing, you know, uh, concepts not just of gender equality, but of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In fact, that's the discussion that we are having now. And I don't, our discussion wasn't that focused. I, I don't think we had that discussion, but it wasn't, the lens wasn't as broad as it is now, nor is the discussion as sophisticated as it is now. Hi, I'm Julia Tedro-Provencher. Welcome to part one of our podcast mini-series, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the CBA Touchstones Report. Affecting actual change on EDI in the legal profession since 1993. In this episode, the story of the Bertha Wilson Task Force and the origins of the Touchstones Report. 30 years ago this year, the CBA released Touchstones for Change, Equality, Diversity and Accountability, which became the template for the EDI policies that are commonplace in the legal profession today. Little did she know it at the time, but then CBA staffer Melina Buckley would be the one to collate the research and to work product of this new task force and became the lead author of the Touchstones report. As soon as it was published in 1993, the CBA set about applying the report's many recommendations to itself. This is a story about self-reflection and a willingness to embrace change on the part of the members, the legal profession in the face of, well, the evidence. The result is a better understanding of how we view equity versus equality and of the impacts of intersectionality. It's a cause for celebration, yes, but though progress continues to be made 30 years on, motherhood continues to be incompatible with the partner track, largely due to the billable hours system. We see a high incidence of women leaving law firms after roughly five years, choosing to go solo or join smaller boutique firms seek more accommodating position as in-house counsel, or just leave the profession altogether. Furthermore, equity-seeking groups continue to be severely underrepresented all across our profession and overly represented in our prisons. The CBA Task Force on Gender Equality was created in 1991 and was chaired by Madame Justice Bertha Wilson, first ever female justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, the SCC. As we go to air in November 2023, it seems the SCC will be the first court of its kind in the Western world to have a female majority on the bench. It was about time. 
Let's listen in our kitchen table discussions with three of the original task force members, Daphne Dumont, Patricia Bloxham, and Justice Sophie Bourg, as well as the author of the report, Melina Buckley. We start with Justice Sophie Bourg, relating a story told to her by Madame Justice Wilson about a landmark Supreme Court ruling in 1990. Oh, that's the that's the that's the story about the Levely case. You've heard about that. I hope I hope I'm not revealing any uh, deliberation secrecy of the, the the Supreme Court here. But uh, uh, Berta Wilson once ex- told us uh, b- basically what happened behind the doors of the Supreme Court in the Levely case. Uh, which is the battered wife syndrome case. And for me, this is, if there's one feminist case in the Supreme Court is the Lavalley case. If there's one case for the importance of diversity on the bench, it's the Lavalley case. Uh, because what she, what she told us is that, uh, so just for the full story, remember that uh, Angelique uh, Lavalley, had killed her husband that has been assaulting her for 20, 25 years. And she shoot him in the back when he was leaving the bedroom after he left her the riffle saying, well, when I'll come back in that room, it's going to be you or me. And she shot him in the back when he was leaving the room. And his lawyer, and it's a case from Manitoba, that was Mark Brentford, if I remember correctly, a uh, fantastic defense lawyer with curly long hair to the middle of his back. Uh, and he has uh, presented that defense uh, uh, that her only that it was self-defense because her only way to save her life was to uh, to do what she has done. And he lost in first instance, lost in the Court of Appeal, and it went to the Supreme Court. And uh, at the time, it was Brian Dixon that was the chief justice, and uh, Brian Dixon and Madame Wilson were very great friends. They were the two seniors. So they heard a case, and they retired behind those two big doors. And as everybody knows, when they, uh, when they retire, they go to the library just across the corridor, and they sit around this beautiful table, round table. And at the time, it was the youngest judge that expressed his opinion uh, on the case, and then uh, Justice Dixon asked if anybody wants to write the decision. So here it goes, around and around, and everybody say, no defense, no self-defense like that, no self-defense, no self-defense, no self-defense. So it was excellent. And Wilson, she said nothing. And then uh, Brian Dixon asked, well, who wants to write the decision? So uh, Berta, was, Berta, she said, well, I would like to write that decision, Brian. Uh, and you know, we couldn't refuse or anything because they were so much good friends. And so they took the elevator because he has a wooden leg that he lost during the war, the Second World War. So they took the elevator together. And she said that he asked her, why do you want to write a decision? There's nothing in there. And she said, well, I'm not quite so sure, Brian. And she said that she wrote her opinion, which is really a revolution and really a feminine view of what self-defense is. You know, she was really, to write that decision, she really has to put herself in the shoes of a woman, uh, and now she can defend herself. 
So she wrote her opinion and uh, she sent her, her opinion to all of her colleagues and all of her copy came back signed I from Cure. None came and discussed it. There was a little, you know, comment by Justice Opinka on expert evidence and the fine, but basically that's how Lavalle case was done. And for me, this is the biggest statement for diversity. You know, what it means and how powerful it is on a bench and how it can shape more than any Section 15 decision, I think. This is uh, this is a very, very powerful example. So I think that's a very, it's, it's a very nice story. And it's also showed the open-minded. I will preach for my, my, uh, <laughs> my community of judges. Uh, but that was, and that was in 1990. So that was a long time ago, Lavalley. Uh, well, not so long, not such a long time ago. Uh, so it shows the open-minded of, uh, of, you know, people of legal background of this all over legal community. Sophie, that also points to something else, right? Is that when you talk about diversity, right? Diversity in our profession, diversity on the bench, that Bertha was the first woman on the Supreme Court of Canada. She did Lavalie, she did Morgenthaler, she did Brooks and Canada Safeway. Those were revolutionary decisions under the charter and they changed the way that we look at equality. Um, and I think that that is that's more than powerful uh, support for why we need to continue to have diverse perspectives at, at every level of our profession because it will change who we are as lawyers. It will further us along this road of change uh, and equality. Um, because we can't get there until we we really, truly start to shift the profession. And, you know, when we're talking about kids, I sometimes wonder still, we all said, like, we don't want to have this model that we felt that we had to conform to, which is a male, a white male uh, form. We all need to conform to that. We need to fit into that. And it doesn't fit. But I still wonder how much women um, in big firms maybe in other areas of practice, I'm more familiar with private practice myself, how much they still have to conform to that model, right? It's still that male, uh, that male suit they're trying to fit in, that male culture that they're trying to fit in because we're still driven so much by billable hours. There might be maternity leave, paternity leave, and equity co uh, committees on big firms. But the bottom line is that there is still gross underrepresentation of women in big firm partnerships because that model hasn't really changed much is you got to do those 2200 billable hours a year you've got to be you know pitching uh, clients uh, you know most of them male corporation corporations that still are headed by men not women and so i still think we're trying to squeeze ourselves into there and and having more diversity having um our assumptions challenged in a in a real way in a meaningful way to get that that culture to change is a task that we still have ahead of us. Luckily for us, uh, the timing, the, the one thing about the delay that was good was that it meant that we could take advantage of the fact that Bertha Wilson retired from the Supreme Court of Canada and Wayne Chapman just happened to be at, speaking at a conference with her, uh, you know, a week or so after she announced her retirement and she you know, he got in there before all the offers came for her to do uh, a lot of the other exciting things that she did after retiring. 
And um, so that really galvanized those two things, sort of this internal group of women that were really uh, pushing their way up, really working hard within the CBA to become a, a cohesive leadership, I would say. And then, you know, this, um, this opportunity with Bertha Wilson coming that gave it the, uh, uh, the task force a whole different level of uh, publicity than we would have had otherwise. It was a time where almost every law society, all the big law societies were already doing work in this area. So it was a bit like, what can the CBA add to that? Uh, and it was, um, anyway, so, so the CBA committed to implementation and also committed to transforming itself. We had an entire chapter, as you all know, about um, the CBA and how it had to change. And Sophie led us through those uh, recommendations. We did that with the executive before the report was made public. And it was a challenging um, full-day meeting about that. You know, and there was a lot of, um, a lot of backlash is too strong, but a lot of um, uh, negative reactions right off the bat. Uh, but, you know, we persevered. But, but it was only because that groundwork had really been done by uh, Daphne and, and Sophie and others that we were able to get there. And so even, sorry, I'm going on too long, but um, I did want to make, I just I want to make one point, other point, which is that it actually started transforming the CBA during the task force time. So for example, the, the CBA, uh, there was a lot going on. I mean, there was a progressive, it was a progressive moment within the CBA outside of the issue of women in the profession and equality uh, more generally. So it was like more of a social justice moment within the CBA, I would say. And um, and so the um, executive had brought forward this new policy that the CBA would intervene in the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, in an appropriate case. And it was as a result of the work that the task force was doing that the first case selected was the Symes case about the deductibility of childcare expenses and whether or not um, the fact that they couldn't be deducted was an equality issue in French section 15 of the charter. And so uh, the very first televised case in the Supreme Court of Canada was Slimes versus the Queen and the CBA was, uh, that was our first intervention nationally. And it was because of the work of the task force. Um, and another important issue that came up in that time was the rape shield law. So the redefinition of consent in the criminal code. And the CBA was the only legal organization that uh, spoke in favor of that huge change in the law. All of the criminal defense organizations were, um, for, you know, for, for, for you know, understandable reasons, um, were uh, not supportive of it and were actively uh, trying to make sure that, didn't, that change didn't happen. And the CBA's voice um, and submissions to the par through the parliamentary process, I think, made a difference. It didn't, I mean, it didn't stem from that, but we were, the CBA was at the meeting um, where that was initiated in, in reaction to the Superior case. It really started even before the report came out because of the energy within the organization. The CBA said two or three years before we really got off the ground, we've got to do something about women's roles at all levels of law, professors, judges, etc. And how are we doing? Uh, that was a bit of a, uh, one of the th great things about the CBA is it gave that a chance to come forward as a simple resolution that we still do today, 
saying, let's do this. I was at the meeting where the decision was made and, um, and which was a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, and so what happens was we're put together. I honestly think I'm sure my colleagues would agree with me that if they picked six or seven other lawyers, we would have had the same experience if we'd sit or judges, we'd picked, you know, there are probably thousands of professionals in the bar at the time that could have done what we did, given that we could all depend on Melina. Um, who was brilliant in her consolidation of everything we were putting together. Uh, but I do think, I hope the others would agree that we would sort of go, let's meet with the young lawyers at Windsor Law School. And then bang, there's this enormous outpouring of frustration about um, about equity and equality as opposed to just women, but but multi multifaceted equality issues that they were experiencing, whether they were immigrant lawyers or, or racialized uh, lawyers or law students. The same with judges, the same with private family lawyers, government lawyers were just dying to tell us what what their experience was under the what they call the, they said, we don't have a glass ceiling here in the government, we just have the thick layer of men. And one thing I do remember, I vividly remember sitting in the great halls of the of the, these debates, because there were hundreds of people there, and they're all lawyers and all too much coffee. So it, it was challenging. And but what I do remember is in the first year, I think you both will as well, there were there were, you know relatively pompous fellows, you know, I say fellows advisedly, standing up and saying, Oh, you know, well, well, that can't be, that's unfair. You know, if we if we say that there has to be affirmative action in the hiring of young lawyers, that's just completely against, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And 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 that but these were devoted members of the organization. And they were swayed by articulate arguments coming but from prepared other lawyers in the room, uh, not just us, but so, so many others and quite young, nervous young lawyers would stand up and say, but sir, you know, I, I could tell you that this did happen to me and New Brunswick doesn't treat us well or whatever. And the same people who were almost offensively against us at some of the early stages became some of our biggest supporters down the road. I think we could all think of a few. And a lot of it was just just absolute They've never their level of uh, um, privilege has just never been challenged, and they knew themselves as good people who were interested in justice. So they they almost couldn't handle the fact that we're saying, well, you're not, you know, we and you aren't doing it right. But that changed, and I think the same was true of the law firms. I mean, they all have equity committees now. I mean, it's it's you know, they, but it just it took endless pounding, and it sure helped to have Bertha Wilson out there in front you know, uh, supporting this from her traditional role as the, you know, wife of a Presbyterian chaplain in the Navy <laughs> to a very serious role in the Supreme Court and pounding in with judgments as well that uh, that um, uh, gave profoundly scholarly analysis of what we were saying in our profession for other people, uh, uh, mostly women in, in the other situations. So I, I, that was the resistance that surprised me. These are friends, you know, standing up saying, you're, you know, you guys, you women, you know, what are you thinking? I mean, that was the implication we had. But luckily, the executive was pretty much, much on side. Most of the staff was very much on side. And there were some, some lovely sort of undercover feminists in the Canadian Bar Association staff who came out as, <laughs> you know, became very obviously supporters, researchers. So, so um, I mean, it was the old uh, 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 suffragists from the 10s and 20s in England. I can't remember who wrote the book, but one of them wrote a book about 
uh, the process of getting the vote and that it's called what glorious times they had. <laughs> and I think for all of this resistance, we were conscious of having a glorious time moving forward and and seeing the dissemination of what we were doing being very effective. Just kind of an anecdote, but do you remember when we issued a report and Berta Wilson, she was asked by, uh, by uh, a journalist, I think, ask her, well, what are you going to do with a dinosaur in your profession? And her answer were, was, uh, well, attrition works wonders. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that it was really, but although I'm not so sure that it works, it's wonder now, that once it's wonders now that we are, you know, 30 years past. But, uh, you know, Pat, what you said that, you know, law firms, were, they were all saying not in our firm, not in our firm. We have a little bit the same thing today because women are leaving the profession still in greatest number numbers than men. And if you ask law firms, establishment, uh, they will all say that they have done everything in their power to retain women. And nobody will agree and say, well, maybe that there's something else to do because obviously something is not working. And it always surprised me just in terms of billable hours. Back then, 30 years ago, there were still 24 hours in a day and women lawyers were still having kids and there was a certain number of hours required. This number has only increased. And for me, it's a, a you know an obvious contradiction when you say that we've done everything we can and you're increasing the requirement for billable hours. Uh, for me, it just doesn't make sense. So we still have the same, a little bit of the same argument, not, not in my backyard, the not in my backyard argument. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's discrimination, not because people willfully want to discriminate. There's discrimination because some people are getting a benefit from discrimination. Not because they want to hurt people, because they want to retain the privileges they have. And sometimes it's very unconscious. There's very few women, uh, not women, but men in the last 30 years that have agreed that they have benefited from the overall discrimination against women, against black people, against indigenous. No, nobody's benefit. You can't, you talk to people and nobody has benefiting from that. So you wonder, well, why is it still around? Is nobody is taking advantages of discrimination? And I think that once people will recognize that they are uh, receiving benefit from it, from discrimination, whatever its form, that maybe there's going to be a new dialogue about what it is, and what are the solutions to eliminate it? It's not, but there's also a layer of patriarchy, right? And then there are structural forces like systemic racism and patriarchy or misogyny that have a compounding effect. So because, you know, social psychological studies show you're more likely to share with someone who's like you, who you identify with. Confirmation right? bias. Yeah. So... You know, it's it's it takes really active measures um, uh, to overcome that, and it takes actually really challenging some of those um, structures, which is the transformative part that we were all 
talking about yeah that we just kind of dance around because it's hard it's hard and it doesn't happen in one step so it's like it's some multi-layer levels of action because it's attitude and institutional practices and structure of the economy and uh, behaviors it's like every level of society of, of human interaction and societal interaction i used to quote nelly mcclung a lot when we were uh doing this report because her writings from the 20s and the, the 1910s and 20s are just so relevant and one of the things she said uh when she talks about um which she it's essentially she's talking about the duty to accommodate but uh she says when women are trying to get the vote and trying to get into politics that all the more traditional privileged men would say well we wouldn't want to force women into the hurly-burly of politics because it would, would rub the bloom off the rose and she said oh yes sir you don't care about the chambermaid that comes in from western manitoba and has to walk home after cleaning your office at three in the morning because the all of the little buses have stopped running that doesn't bother you at all sir what bothers you is when you're about to lose your comfortable position you know it's it's the thought of women getting into well-paid and comfortable positions that rings your manly heart and and that that was so true with duty to accommodate because it specifically meant that someone had to say i'll stay an hour later to let mother pat be at home with her little girl i was uh i i vividly remember discovering what feminism was when I was about 20, I went to Queen's University at, uh, we lived in Halifax, but I went to Queen's in 1970 and did four years there of a degree in philosophy and history. And uh, during that time, Germaine Greer came out with the female eunuch. The Dean of Women at Queen's invited her to speak at Queen's. She was staggeringly good. I remember sitting in a meeting where she, all of us who were around, um, you know, just were amazed. And we were very lucky that she would come all the way from, I think it was Australia then, or possibly England. Um, and uh, other people shared books, Virginia Woolf. So we we read a lot. And uh, I think the uh, I think one of the Betty Friedan books came out as well at that time. So this is way back in the early 70s. And so as I went through my undergrad and thought might like to be a lawyer, could be a lawyer, took a couple of uh, jurisprudence courses like yeah I can I can do this I would love to be a lawyer and so I applied um, and started uh, thinking about law school but the whole feminist step was from basically nowhere to really getting into it within a very short number of years but I look even back before that my mother served overseas in London in the Second World War with the Red Cross Volunteer Corps. And she was 22 when she went over there. She sailed across the U-boat infested North Atlantic and worked over there volunteering uh, with the Red Cross. And and I've I, a hundred times thought, wow, you know, that took a lot of courage. And to stand up to her parents and say, I want to pr provide this service, I think inspired me. So she was a natural feminist, although didn't have the sort of a, uh, intellectual training, although she's a brilliant woman. So I think that helped me. And um, then I was recommended by my profs at Queens for law school. Um, they, they said, well, you know, now you can go anywhere. Do you want to stay in Canada? So I said, well, where else can I go? And <laughs> I ended up applying amazingly to Oxford University where I got in. And uh, I, it always astonished me. Uh, but 
I was the first woman law student in my college ever. And this was a college of hundreds of years of age and uh, a university of even more. I was the first woman to actually enter any man's college as a student because the year that I applied to go happened to be the first year that, that five of the men's colleges took the amazing feminist step to say, we have to bring women in, this is ridiculous. And so they started uh, bringing us in. So everything there was a bit of a fight. You know, if you um, they didn't have a locker room for women, it was, it was the sort of thing that women went through in the 20s in Canada, or maybe even the 1880s. But uh, so I was always conscious, I'm not trying to blow my own horn, but just to explain, I was always conscious that women have to fight. It's always a res you know, revolution. It's the revolution is ongoing. It never stops. Um, and over there, I was reading Simone de Beauvoir and, and some of the other great thinkers. Uh, but I mean, it was wonderful. The welcome in my college was so wonderful. We still meet um, and celebrate how positive they were about this. So then I came back to Queens, finished up my law degree and came back to PEI, a little PEI where I found a community of women who'd been working since the mid uh, NDP people mostly, but been working since the mid sixties to try to achieve something uh, for women legally in PEI. Um, it was just around the time of the Iris Murdoch case about the farm women uh, not having any rights to the farm. We all remember this one or have heard about it. And there were women's groups. Uh, Nall was uh, up and going by then very, very early. Um, and uh, consequently, uh, when I got there, there was one other woman who had come before me, the first to practice in PEI. She'd started two or three years before, uh, but she was uh, she was a married woman with four kids, not a she wasn't a weak feminist, but she just wasn't someone who liked to put herself forward and chair meetings and make plans and join things. So I sort of became, oh, wow, we got one. <laughs> you know. So uh, I was a very early practitioner in PEI, uh, the second active, no, I should say the third active practitioner. Um, so that taught me a lot. So I learned a lot about what women needed and what they didn't have and what the, was wrong with the law just by virtue of being the age I was at the time I was moving through. And I, I, I mean, I know the women who came before us were phenomenal, but, but, uh, and we, we needed, we had a lot to learn. So I was immediately completely committed to doing anything I could do publicly in the law, you know, legislation, law reform whatever and i had the wherewithal to do it because people were very supportive and i ended up in the canadian bar association by virtue of putting sticking my little hand up at a meeting and saying i i'll be volunteer for law day do you remember we developed law day which is a celebration of the charter that the cba set up and i said okay what's the cba i guess i'll join that and i'll i'll run the local law day and uh great thing about PEI, you put your hand up, you end up on a national committee because there's not many people here. <laughs> so so uh, that took me into the CBA where I found a wonderful welcome. And and uh, uh, I'm not sure why they chose me for the committee, uh, for the, for the, uh, the, the Touchstones um, initiative. Um, but uh, it may have been a combination of a lawyer from a smaller town, someone who'd been around the CBA by then for some years, um, uh, but I, I was, as you, Pat, and I'm so glad to hear you had the same thing. Just sign me up. Where do I go? What do I do? I'm, I was staggered to be asked, but I, I was very, very happy to be involved. 
That's so interesting. That's I didn't know all of that about you, Daphne. But that's well, so uh, so interesting that you went to Oxford. Wow, I agree with you, Pat. This is so incredibly interesting, and it it brings me back to how out of place I was feeling in this group, barely understanding English. I want to <laughs> to remind that I was barely understanding English. Well, we learned something from you too. I remember, Sophie, like your style. You came into that first meeting and and um, French, young, uh, vivacious. You had on some little short skirt and just like perfectly put together. And I remember looking at you going, oh, ooh la la, look at her. She is really going to be a, a lot of fun. And indeed you were. Man, you were, you were, uh, you were, uh, Always, uh, always willing to say what you thought. Never, never filtered. Hmm. And I, I always say, Sophie, no reason to apologize for not speaking perfect English. We, Pat and I and others, our French was nowhere yeah. uh, or a little bit, you know, and you did all the work you did either in, in, in another language, except when we were in Quebec or in areas where there were many Francophone lawyers you took the lead. We needed you so much. And even Bertha Wilson, I think if I'm correct, her French was not at the level that today would be, I would say, at least required of a Supreme Court justice. Um, and uh, she relied heavily on Sophie and Malina, you know, to to assist yeah. us because uh, we were over Anglophone, I would say. And the t it was exhausting for you, I remember, on some of those long, long days of the resolutions and, and uh, you know, to just be hang, hanging in all the time in in not your first language when you're such a brilliantly articulate person, you know. So, so you never, see how they never, are. never, never apologize. You see how they for are. That. <laughs> That's why it was so fantastic. <laughs> but I remember very well when I received a phone call from the prison chapman. I was leaving the office and I was passing through the reception, and, the, and I was in a small law firm doing criminal law and defense. And um, the, 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 the receptionist told me, who was actually the receptionist, the secretary, the everything, the accountant and everything, as in small law firm at the back end of time. And you say, oh, you have a telephone from President Chapman. President Chapman, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> I pick up the phone and he asked me to be a member of the task force. I didn't have a clue what I was getting involved in. Uh, but at the time, I was on the Young Lawyers Conference of the Canadian Bar Association, and I guess this is where it comes from. I was on the Women's Committee of the Montreal Bar, and like Pat said, and like you said, uh, uh, I think that being a feminist uh, certainly helped uh, getting on the task force. And I started very young. Actually, I started, I was six years old in the schoolyard at the non-school, it was a non-school back then, it was before Quiet Revolution, and they have long black dress and their cornet and everything. And Sir Jeanne was the teacher in first grade. She was terrifying all of us. <laughs> and uh, But the day before, and early, uh, my little colleague had said that uh, little boys are born in cabbage and girls in roses. Uh, this doesn't, it just, I couldn't leave that there. And my, I have a book at home from Time Life. I still have that book. And it's all kind of little cut 
and a paste uh, image at work, picture of body of a man and a woman, and then you have the men and the women under a blanket. You just see the black blanket and blah, blah, blah. So I brought it to the schoolyard the next day and show it to my little colleague. And suddenly it was very popular. There was a lot of little kids around me, but Sir Jean was not very happy with that. And she called home and she said to my mom, uh, you should be ashamed to let your daughter bring stuff like that at school. And she said, she's doing what she wants to do. And she's perfectly, what she brought to school is perfectly all right. And uh, so I was born also from a feminist mom, uh, which helped. And uh, and I was, I think I was the president of the women committee in grade one. Uh, so that helped too. Uh, but when I was called, I was also a member of the Montreal Junior Bar. And when I got there, I was a lawyer in 1984. And when I went, when I get in the Junior Bar in 87, at that time, women lawyers that were pregnant were choosing the hospital where they will be delivering their baby for its proximity with the office. And there was no maternity leave, no nothing. So I raised the issue at the Montreal Junior Bar thinking that everybody will agree that we have to stick our nose into that. And to my great surprise, that was not the reaction. The reaction was that, well, this is a private concern. We have nothing to do with that. I think that what, a, what the task force was kind of to see the power of solidarity in action. Uh, and it was coming from so many different directions uh, of the profession. Um, but it was also, I think, for me, a time where I lost a certain form of innocence that uh, inequality are going to be so evident. It's going to be so self-evident that we have to do something that nobody will contest it, you know, and everybody will get on board to really get rid of injustice and inequality. Well, what a surprise. <laughs> it was not exactly received like that, despite all the work that was done. I think for my part, uh, one of the biggest surprise was the cultural differences between feminism in Quebec and feminism in the rest of Canada and the different position of women and the challenges they were facing in Quebec and in the rest of Canada. Uh, for me, uh, and this is my uh, five cents uh, sociology, sociological analysis, so it's worth absolutely nothing uh, it's only my personal opinion. But uh, in Quebec, we have a much uh, softer approach, a little small step approach, step by step. We're going to get there very patiently. Well, I felt, my feeling was that the feminism in the rest of Canada was much more aggressive. Uh, at first, I just thought that it was a difference in the approach. But uh, I, I ended up realizing that it, and this is, half a cent of social analysis. It's not even a five cent analyze, analysis, it's a half a cent. Um, I think that the quiet revolution has made a big difference in Quebec in the relationship between men and women because uh, in the, with the quiet revolution in the end of the 60s and the early 70s, what the, the religion, the religion was, the Catholic religion was so present and controlling everything in Quebec, that we people don't remember 
that women were dying because when their doctors say you can't have a 13 child, but the priest was walking in the house after and say, it's your duty to God to have that child. Uh, those were things that were lived by my aunts, as an example. Uh, we have no idea. But when we throw that away, this coincided with the last wave of feminism, the, the waves with, that came with the, with the contraceptive pills, which is one of the biggest uh, a biggest breakthrough in women's health and the women's liberation movement. So everything was in this big melting pot in Quebec. And I think that the men didn't realize that the women were taking a place <laughs> that because everything was in this turmoil. Uh, so I kind of felt that the situation might be different in Quebec. I may be completely wrong. Uh, but that for me was a big, a big surprise. I didn't know much about Canada before going to the CBA. Actually, I knew nothing about Canada before going to the CBA. And I learned a lot, uh, about, uh, about what Canada is, what the, what Canadians are, what are the differences, what are the things that we share and so on. But even on that issue of feminism, there are distinctions. Uh, and Quebec is a distinct society. <laughs> even for that uh so that was uh that was for me that was a big surprise um i'm gonna say that probably most of us that uh, that are here in this room today and everybody that was on the task force um could be described by the f word we were all feminists okay and uh feminists that uh feminism that started from a sense of reality of what it was like to be a woman going into the legal profession. And uh, I graduated uh, from law school in 1982 and was called to the bar in 1983. And uh, I know that just the experience of going through law school and my experiences before that, you know, made me feel like I needed to be a strong advocate for women. I was um, actually, I'm sure that part of the reason they appointed me is that I was a feminist shit disturber, but I also had kids. So I had just had my third child, uh, my, my first daughter and my third child in November of 1990. And so I was appointed in August of 1991. I had a baby, right? And I was back at work. Well, when I had her, my partner, Wendy Best, um, had a baby uh, 12 hours after me. So we had our daughters within 12 hours in a pretty small family practice. And there wasn't really anyone that could pick our practice up. So I was back at work after I had her really within days, right? Trying to look after my practice. I got appointed to the task force. I didn't hesitate in taking that, even though I had a couple little kids at home. Um, but I do know that uh, she was not a very good sleeper. And um, I was chronically tired. I, I just, you know, we, we, I don't know, we met every six weeks, didn't we? Um, ladies, about six weeks, and, and it often involved um, me on a Thursday at East, right? So I would go from Calgary to Toronto, Montreal, sometimes Halifax, and sometimes we met in Vancouver, but most of yeah. the meetings were in the East. We met quite a lot in Vancouver. But yeah, there was a few in Vancouver. I don't think there were any in Calgary, so I think that they skipped Calgary. But, but whatever reason, I was always um, grabbing a plane and uh, taking off on a uh, Thursday and we would start work on Friday. We worked all day Friday, all day Saturday, and we would usually have an early morning on uh, meeting on Saturday, Sunday, 
And then I would take off, fly home, and I would start work again on Monday morning. And so my, uh, yeah, I was profoundly tired during those years. And I can just remember that. Like, I got sick quite a bit. Um, but, you know, you just, I, I don't know what it is. You don't really think about it when you're in it. You just do it because it needs to be done, right? I needed to do what I could with my kids. And thank God I uh, had someone, a, a partner that was able to pick up the slack. And um, I had a firm that was uh, a co- very accommodating to, to me doing this work. Uh, in fact, um, my partner, Jack Dumphy, was the president of the Alberta branch when this work was started, right? Cease Johnson was, she was next, she was an incoming national, but she had been the, uh, the president of the Alberta branch as well. Um, and so I had a supportive firm. I had someone that was helping me at home, um, but it was chronically exhausting. I think for me, the task, I mean, the task force was my first big professional project. I was working on uh, the constitutional amendment process at the same time. So they were going sort of side by side. Um, and I, you know, I went into the law thinking of myself as someone who would work in the realm of ideas. Like I was that kind of lawyer. I Dealing with people was not my forte. I was extremely shy extremely shy so so what I got what I eventually had to do when I became the full project director for the task force was a big stretch for me on that side not the analysis I could write you you know a hundred page summary of all of the provincial law society reports in three days and I did that you know but but actually having to deal with people and you know deal with some of the experts for example that we hired to do papers um to help the task force and so on. That was a big stretch for me. And so I think in some ways, this project changed my conception of self, at least my conception of myself as a professional. And I went to law school, I did my master's in international relations first. And so I went with this idea that law was a tool to make um, Canada and the world a place of true social justice and true equality. And I really thought I was going to do that by developing the most brilliant, you know, section 15 of the charter analysis. Like that would, you know, or helping to do that, working with others. But, and what I learned with the task force was that it's not, it doesn't matter how great the idea is, you have to convince people about it and you have to get people behind that idea. And, and, and that there was a big difference between what was there on paper and the reality. And so that loss of innocence that Sophie was just talking about was definitely something that had a huge impact on me and made me mad, you know, like it made me filled with um, not quite rage. There were many things that made, created rage at that time, you know, or in the early years of my career, but short of that, but real sort of burning a fire, a burning fire, I guess, to figure out how to make equality rights real and what were the avenues for that. And, and and what I really learned from the task force was that hearing people's voices, hearing about that experience from a whole range of people, and somehow capturing that and sharing that out back out uh, in a way that people could hear would be one way. So t- the power of the story, which of course um, is not that novel, but and lawyers do that uh, naturally as part of their work, but. For me, that was real insight about how to do that 
And I think we did a fairly good job of that. I mean, there's always more that you can do. And so that's something that I've carried through um, in all of my work. And the other thing was just tenacity. You know, it's just about keeping on doing it day after day and um, and helping people along the way. And, and one, or not really helping people, but being aware of what other people might need um, in order for them to achieve their own fulfillment. And one of the uh, comments that really struck me and has stayed with me was about sort of mid-level women lawyers who found there was no support from the more senior lawyers that much of the attitude was like we got here on our own and we're sort of looking out for ourselves there wasn't sort of that sense of solidarity and i think you know from what daphne and sophie and, and pat have said and i know pat i mean all of you have been huge mentors to people that that was something that again sort of the people side of it is really what i go out of the task force rather than the idea or you know how to write a report or whatever all, all that side of it i think what's maybe changed now what we tried to do with the report was to say the problem is not with the woman right like the the, the professor at the time would say well women just have to you just have to be able to go along with the jokes like the problem is you the problem is that you're not willing to see this as funny you know pornography or some kind of belittling of someone and the problem is with you and what we were trying to say is like no the problem is with the structure of the profession and to show by showing that it, it it's being replicated in all areas of the profession through the you know the different chapters are of the report are, are focused on that as you know most of you will know but just saying that in case uh, some people um, don't you know, remember every word of the report. <laughs> so, you know, and so we started with law schools and, you know, articling problems and, you know, young lawyers and, you know, family law practice, corporate judges, administrative tribunals, government lawyers, and so on. Large law firms and small law firms. So we really tried to, and they were all CBA members, so we had a rationale for doing that. But what we were really trying to say was, like, it's the way the organization is practiced that is the problem. It's not the woman that's the problem. And that's, I think, you know, where we, a big part of, of the push the implementation was for, for all of us, like especially Sophie, Pat, me, and Daphne, and Cecilia Johnson, um, who was, you know, sort of the incoming, the next president, um, the year right after the task force report was uh, uh, tabled. And so she led the initial discussions. So she was like an intimate part of this. We were out there on the front lines, as it felt like, talking about the report and getting like <laughs> getting a lot of uh, suffering, a lot of criticism in some very very difficult situations. I'm sure I'm sure all of us have our stories about that. I, I, Pat has a good story that I hope she shares, um, but. And so that feeling, like we went from this kind of cozy, really great conversation, as Daphne was saying, where people like had open doors and welcomed, or sometimes they wanted private meetings, which we tried to accommodate. So we, you know, there was kind of this, not quite a love but this like, we're all in this together, and yes, and we're moving forward, and we understand each other. And then, boom, you know, like we get the reaction. It's like, you know, chief justices in various provinces saying, there's no problems on my court. We're not even talking about this report, except, you know, and so on. And some truly awful 
um, things being said to us and done to us as people who were associated with group work. Uh, I mean, none of us have suffered. Our careers haven't really suffered, I have to say. But the moments were very difficult, very difficult. And so, but, but our message was that. It was like, it's a profession that has to change. Don't be asking women to change. And I think that was the main message. So I don't know if this is the time to share, but uh, I think this is what you were referring to. Uh, I know Cease Johnson and I, and uh, I can't remember who else was there. Uh, some other women that were maybe on the provincial working group in Alberta uh, made a presentation on the recommendations of the task force report to all of the senior members of the, uh, the, the law society, the chief justices, they were all men, right? All chief justices. And I remember I articled for um, the chief justice uh, at the, Court of Queen's Bench, and I asked him before we went in. I said, "What, uh, what, what, uh, what did you think of our report?" He said, "You don't want to know." I said, "No." I said, "I, I do want to know." He says, "No, you don't want to know. You do not want to know what I think about your report." And then we get in front of these people. I tell you, I had nightmares about doing this because it was so stressful. There was this critical mass of women in every sector of the profession, and. We, um, I like to say that we used, we talked about all of these issues, but we talked about them often in safe places, in hushed tones, because it was not safe when I started practicing law to have discussions about sexual harassment, about accommodation if you have kids. And I had two kids. In fact, I just had a baby when I joined the task force. And so I think that there was this sigh of relief is that we get to say these things, right? We get to have this discussion. And we have it cloaked with the sort of institutional respectability of the CBA. And so they're letting us have a format and we're having this discussion about it. Um, I, it, a lot of these discussions uh, were extraordinarily difficult, but there was a place to start having them. And there hadn't, there'd been, there'd been the Law Society, I was on the, the Alberta Law Society uh, Equality Committee that, you know, had started a few years before the task force and we had done our own survey in Alberta. But, you know, there was, there was even a, such a reaction to the fact that we were doing a survey about about bias, gender bias. You, you, like some of the comments that came back from from the profession. I, you know, I don't know if they were men, but it sounded like men saying it. Um, were horrific comments, horrific, horrific, nasty, mean comments. And so we started this work, um, you know, with with lots of support, but also with you know a, a lot of sort of resistance. And, um, you know, I just, I think putting it in that context is that women and men too, but, but particularly women uh, were having these conversations and they were just so eager to elevate those discussions to a more public uh, level where something could happen and we could potentially get some traction around them. When we did our first uh, conference, which was October, right? It was, I think it was within the first 10 months of the task force uh, being implemented. And we invited, invited many, many different groups to that conference. And they said, they said so clearly to us that you need to, um, to look at intersectionality and you need to broaden the scope of who's on this task force because you don't represent me, right? There's, there's no women of color on this. Uh, there's no Aboriginal women. There's no disabled women. And we really had to regroup and say, you're right. 
that we have to talk about all women and women aren't just, you know, white, uh, white women. We need to talk about all women uh, when we look at this report and look at all forms of discrimination. And uh, it was an, it was a really important moment for us. And um, I think it was really critical to the credibility of our task force that we were able to take that feedback and, and, and say that, that you're right, you're absolutely right. And we need to expand the scope of our work, our inquiry and the, the depth of the people that are working on this task force, not just the task force itself, but also our provincial working groups. Yeah. And, and really you know, I say too, the one thing I'm really proud about, because I actually think when I think about it is that we, we looked at equality through one lens. And uh, if I were to use that as a metaphor, that lens broadened when we did that, right? But that also created a lens for looking at equality in the profession. And when we look at where we're at today and how broad that lens is now, where it's not focused on gender, it's focus focused on diversity, inclusion and equity. And I really believe that the seeds of that were sown, uh, sown in some significant way in the work that this task force did and how we looked at that and really heard the voices of the most uh, marginalized and discriminated people in the profession. Intersectionality, a phrase coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. And it is the topic of our third episode in this series. In episode two, Speaking Truth to Power, we hear not only from our original task force members, but also from cross-section of leading women in the legal profession today on the impact of the CBA Touchstone report. And we will explore some of the often quite negative initial reaction to it back in 1993. And, um... The hostility. I remember one senior member of the, the profession put his hand up and he said, Jill, no one understands how hard it is these days to be a man. There's stats, there's stats that somebody say that there's a statistic and then there's damn lies. Remember somebody stood up yeah, at the lies, console? Lies, lies, damn lies and statistics. And statistics, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Then if it was not statistics that are damn lies, it was only anecdotal. The resistance was, uh, it was fierce. It was really fierce. And at times um, it felt like it was dangerous to be uh, to be sitting on this side of the podium with a microphone in front of you and talking about it because there were, there were people that were so antagonistic in the audience. They would stand up and challenge you. And I, I even noticed a slight change when the young women lawyers were coming along in big numbers. There'd be senior partners who previously wouldn't agree to something like maternity leave until their daughter was pregnant at the next door law firm. And they, oh, my daughter, and I'm so proud of my daughter and my daughter's a lawyer. Like we had, we had, you know, 150 years of whatever since our culture came and took over Canada unfairly, <laughs> but you know, where they, they just never saw a woman in their profession ever you know, under any circumstances. And consequently, uh, they never had a child who was dealing with any of it. and. And now that happens all the time. And so, but I think that I think people can adjust. They can identify more with something if it's happening in their own family. This is the Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. 